Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together this evening, and we ask your blessings upon our church uh, during this difficult time and our members. Uh, we haven't heard, I haven't heard of anyone who is uh, sick with the virus at this time that's a member of our church, and we're thankful for that, but uh, we just pray you'll continue to protect us during this time and give wisdom to our leaders and all those who work in ministry and are working in, in difficult circumstances. But we thank you for the opportunity we have to still carry on in spite of these things and pray you'll give us a good class tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's look at our um, quiz here. So the first question is, um, our current edition of the King James Version is the fourth revision of 1769. False. No, that's true. That's oh. true. <laughs> so, that's uh, chance. yeah. So that's, uh, most, uh, most people think that, you know, they, they hear about the 1611. But it was revised, uh, major revisions. It was revised even in 1612, 16, but major revisions, uh, the last one was about 1769, that Dr. Benjamin Blaney, and that's what we're using today. A major problem with the King James Version of today's readers is its archaic language. True. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. That's what I suggested that I think that's the major problem that people have is, the language is just difficult. It's not uh, normal English today. Three, there's a more technical one. The King James translators had access to Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. False. False. That's a false, yeah. We said that that was one thing about the uh, revision, uh, the revised version of 1881, is once we get to the 1800s, the... Scholars have access to old manuscripts like these two famous ones, which the King James translators did not have access to. And they were working with later manuscripts, manuscripts in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, and not those of the 4th century, the 3rd century, and so on. So it's possible to, to produce a Greek text that's that's a, probably a little more closer to the original than the King James. But that's not the major problem with the King James. It's it's the problem of archaic language. Four, the revised version was produced without American involvement. False. That's false, too. So the King James of 1769 was next revised in 1881 by English scholars by the Church of England. But some Americans were invited to uh, participate with them. And so they did by... Uh, by wire, by telegraph, by wire, by sending messages back and forth. They didn't go over to England. And uh, they made their suggestions because American English at even then was different from British uh, English. And so they wanted changes. And, and the Americans didn't get what they wanted exactly. And so the, the revisers put the American suggestions in an appendix to the revised version of 1881. And the revised version of 1881 was a fairly successful version. Remember, it was published in 1881 in both Chicago newspapers, the New Testament. The newspaper actually published the Tribune and Time published the, the whole entire New Testament in May of 1881. So that was an amazing thing. And uh, so it was... Uh, initially somewhat popular, but uh, not particularly in America, even though it was widely heralded in 1881. Number five, the ASV uses Jehovah to translate the Tetragrammaton. True. True. So the Americans who didn't, who were, who didn't get the changes they wanted, they agreed that they would not come out with their own version for a number of years. But in 1901, uh, they came out with the American Standard Version, which was the American edition of the Revised Version. So in 1901, the um, the Americans came out 
with the, that's on page uh, 51, 51, what's called the American Standard Version of the ASV. And one of the things they decided to do was, we talked about last week, that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the name of God is four Hebrew letters. It's got a technical name, tetragrammaton, which just means four letters. And uh, so uh, most translators, the King James and those that have followed the NIV today, ESV, they don't really translate that. They just put they just put the word Lord there in all caps. But actually, it's a personal name. Uh, and uh, it's thought to be it's difficult to know how to pronounce it uh, because the vowels were not uh, preserved. So today you will hear Pastor Ken sometimes he'll say Yahweh. You hear him talk about Yahweh from the pulpit sometime. Um, he's he's talking about the name of God in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, another way to spell that, uh, way it was spelled was Jehovah. And the ASV said, we're not going to put the word Lord there. We're going to translate it with a name, Jehovah. So they, every place in the Old Testament where it says L-O-R-D with caps, they use Jehovah, which was sort of distinctive. And I'll show you later on that another translation in modern times tried to do that a little bit too. The King James translators themselves did not, did not always use Lord. If you, you look at a concordance, look at your Bible sometime and search for Jehovah, you'll find that Jehovah occurs in the, in the King James, like in the book of Exodus. So then sometimes the King James translators translated the Tetragrammaton, Jehovah, uh, but not very often. Six, the ASV was widely used in Bible colleges and seminaries. True. True. So, it it was widely held heralded in America when it came out in 1901. The Presbyterian Church adopted it as their translation. The Southern Baptist seminaries used it extensively, uh, and it was used in Bible colleges. Uh, Dr. McCune, who was the uh, former uh, dean and president of Detroit Baptist Seminary, when he started teaching, he taught from the ASV because that's what he used, that's what he used in seminary. The ASV was very popular with seminary professors because it was a more accurate, up-to-date version. And uh, then when the New American Standard comes out, we'll talk, we showed that, that the new NASB is a revision of the ASV. He switched to that. And I used the NASB. I used that for quite some time myself. So it was very popular, but it never made it into the pew. It, it didn't make it into the churches. <clears throat> it was popular among Bible students, Bible scholars, uh, seminary professors, seminary teachers, Bible college teachers as a very accurate translation, but it never replaced the King James in the pew. <clears throat> Nothing replaced the King James until the NIV came along. And the King James was the best-selling Bible. It's always been the best-selling Bible from about 1650 on until about 1985 or six, when the NIV started outselling the King James and even today it outsells the King James. So the, the King James dominated uh, for, for most of, most of uh, my lifetime <laughs> and his lifetime. We, when we grew up, everybody used the King James. Uh, there was no other translation used. So, uh, let's, uh, continue on here. And we're looking at page, um, 52. We're taking a little, uh, side trip here now. Here is where we're at. We, we had the King, we had all those previous versions starting with Tyndall, 1526. And then the King James in 1611, and that sort of settled things down. The King James was an excellent translation, the best so far of all these translations, revised in 1769. And then the revised version of 1881, the ASV, but as I said, the King James dominated in the churches and so forth. But then uh, on page 52, we talk about modern speech versions. 
And I say here, at the beginning of the 20th century, a movement began to translate the Bible into everyday speech, natural English of the 20th century, rather than the 16th century. One major impetus probably came from the discovery of thousands of papyrus documents at the end of the 19th century, 1898, and into the 20th century in Egypt, chiefly at an ancient town, the ancient town of Oxyrhynchus. Um, Oxyrhynchus is uh, up on the Nile there. It's a, as you can see, approximately 500,000 papyri. Remember, papyrus was that ancient writing material. Were taken out of Egypt to Oxford University. 84 volumes have been published to date. So they started publishing this over a hundred years ago and they're still publishing. Why is that? Because these 500,000 papyri are just, that's a lot of papyri to examine, look at, study, translate. These papyri suggested that the New Testament was written in a colloquial style, Koine Greek, and thus ought to be translated accordingly. So what happened here was when these papyri were discovered, it sort of revolutionized our knowledge of the Greek language. So we know that um, Greek, like other languages, evolves over time. We talked about English. We talked about Old English, Middle English, and then Modern English. English has changed over time. The Greek language changed over time. Uh, a lot of us are, are, we know about classical authors. We know about uh we know about the Iliad. We know about uh, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we we know about uh, uh, Plato and Socrates. We know about those classical authors. Um, and so, when the King James translators translated into 1600, or when they translated in 15, 16, 17, <coughs> the only the only Greek they had any familiarity with was what we call classical Greek, Greek of say 500 BC. They didn't have any documents from the first century. They had the Bible. And the Greek of the Bible was somewhat different from the classical Greek of 500 B.C. Everybody, everybody who went to Oxford and, and, and Cambridge and went to American, to Harvard and Yale, studied Greek. They studied the classical authors. But the Bible's Greek was different. And people had a hard time figuring out why is it different? Well, it's different because. Greek changed in 500 years, but they didn't really understand much about it. They only had the Greek of the Bible to go by. And when these documents were found, they were found from the first century. They discovered that the Greek of the Bible is just like these documents, that the Greek of the Bible was the everyday common Greek that people spoke in the first century. And that was somewhat of a little bit of a revelation because there were actually people who said, the Greek of the Bible is really some sort of special Holy Ghost Greek. It's not not really Greek because all we know is classical Greek. Well, that was crazy, but wrong. But uh, they they found out that no, the Greek of the New Testament is the normal everyday Greek that people spoke in the first century, and that led to the idea. Well, if the New Testament is written in everyday language, the common language of the people on the street and so forth. Shouldn't the Bible today, shouldn't it reflect the common speech of the time you're translating in? In other words, normal English of the time. So that was one thing that led to this idea. We should have the Bible in in our modern language, our modern version of English. I say also, some of these versions we're going to talk about originated out of a concern to make the Bible clear to young people. So let's look at some of these modern, what they're called modern speech versions. And there's a bunch of them here, but I'm just going to highlight the, the biggest ones here. The first one that started this movement was called the 20th Century New Testament, 1901. And I mentioned this was the pioneer uh, modern speech version. And it was conceived of by two laymen, two lay people. Uh, Mary Higgs, the wife of a congregational minister, and Ernest Milan, a signal and telegraph engineer. Now, this is what's always interesting. It's very interesting, is that 
where did the impetus come for this idea? I'd like to be able to read the Bible in normal English. It didn't come from pastors. <laughs> it didn't come from seminary professors. <laughs> it came from people in the pew because they want to understand their Bibles. We, we, we preach and teach to people, hey, you should read your Bible. We want you to study your Bible and understand your Bible. What? Yeah, if you want that, then you've got to give people a version that they can understand in their, in their language. And so, uh, King James by 1901, you know, was very difficult for a lot of people to understand. So this was, uh, people who were not, uh, in the ministry, not seminary, not pastors who came up with this idea. And so they, they enlisted other people to help. And I say here, there, the, the main issue was making the Bible clear to young people. Uh, I mean, I guess Val can tell us all about that. I've never tried to teach children. One time at seminary, I had a class and we had to go and teach, you know, fourth or fifth graders. Yeah, That's the worst experience of my life. I, you know, <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that, that is just tough. Yeah. <laughs> seminary is too many, Seminary teaching is easy compared to fourth and fifth graders. I got to give you all the credit in the world. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true, man. So, uh, so that's what they were doing. They were saying, you know, we, we, we read the King James and these young people don't really understand what we're, what we're saying. We have to explain it. So they began to work on the gospel of Mark, as I say here, and they were joined by about 20 other people. And their work is was called the 20th Century New Testament, a translation into modern English, made from the original Greek, and it mentions Westcott and Hort's text. We mentioned that previously that in 1881, two scholars, Westcott and Hort, came out with a Greek New Testament that took advantage of the latest, the, the, the oldest manuscripts, and they used that translation, that text, pretty much what we use today. They kept their name secret in 1955, interestingly. Now, here's their, their, the preface explains their motivation. It says, a few English people of today have the opportunity of reading the Bible in the English of their own time. In the course of the last hundred years, the Bible has been translated into everyday language of the natives of most countries. But the language of our Bible is still the English of 300 years ago. The translation now offered to the public had its origin and discovery that the English of the authorized version, closely followed by that of revised version, though valued by the more educated reader for its uh, antique charms, is in many passages difficult for those who are less educated or is even unintelligible to them. The retention, too, of a form of English no longer in common use not only gives the impression that the contents of the Bible have little to do with life our day, the life of our day, but also requires expenditure of much time and labor on the part of those who wish to understand or explain it. So this is an issue that we'll get into some more as we go along, because I, we, we'll, you'll encounter many people, and many people feel this. Well, you know, the King James just sounds like the Bible. <laughs> it just sounds like the Bible. And so we ought to use that, you know, as though, you know, that's, and it, it does sound, <laughs> sound like the Bible because that's what we grew up with, you know. But so, uh, you can see, uh, they, they replaced the these and the thou. They replaced the you, replaced the thou in prayers except to God. When God was addressed, they kept the thou and so forth. The books were kind of arranged in chronological order, which is probably not the best thing to do. Uh, Moody published an American edition in 1961 and so forth. And you can see, I got Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, how it kind of reads. I re- entreat you then, brothers, by all God's mercies to you to offer your bodies as a living holy sacrifice except for God. Don't conform to the fashion of this age, but let your lives be transformed by your attitude of mind, so forth. So that's the first one, and it's uh it's uh, a pioneer, and then a lot of people get into get uh started on this idea. The next one I mentioned on page fifty four is Weymouth's New Testament. Weymouth was a classical scholar classical Greek, and he had been consulted by the translators of the 20th century New Testament where they had a problem understanding what the Greek was saying and so forth. I remember these were just people, we say lay people or just average people who knew Greek, who knew Greek well enough 
to translate them, you know. So Greek was widely known even among people who were not in the ministry. And it says its purpose was to give the sense of the Greek as accurately as possible. So he did his own translation, uh, uh, second edition in 1907 and so forth. And there you can see his translation of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, a, a, a one that was more popular was called Moffat's version. Uh, I've used to, uh, sometimes if you go into old bookstore, even into, uh, even into some of these resale shops, they'll, they'll have books on the shelf. I've seen Moffat's version there before. Uh, this is, I say, uh, the most popular of these early modern speech versions. Now, none of these people did this work saying we should use this in our churches. So none of these versions, none of the authors, none of the people who translated this and published this said this should replace the Bible in our church. They were doing it as an extra thing, as something you could read at home to help you understand the Bible. They really weren't trying to replace the King James directly with these kind of versions. And here's Moffat. Moffat was an actually a Scottish scholar. Uh, I say on one occasion when he was scheduled to give a lecture in a certain American city, the bill, billboard announced author of the Bible to lecture tonight. That's kind of mm-hmm. funny. But anyway, uh, there's his uh, B. I mentioned his New Testament, a new translation appeared in 1913, the Old Testament, 1924, and so forth. And so uh, he, uh, I say, see here, Moffat's version was popular because the freshness of its language. His version translates the divine name Yahweh as the eternal. It's not really such a great thing, but it's interesting. Noah's ark is called a barge, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's, uh, so this kind of thing continues on and we come over to good speed. We cut, the American gets involved in this. 1923, Edgar J. Goodspeed. Goodspeed, you're not probably not familiar with, but uh, he was a famous professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, he was not a theological conservative. He was actually a theological, more liberal. But uh, at these modern speech versions were circulating. And uh, he, went, he went to a lecture and uh and he talked about uh, this these versions and he found fault with these three previous mentions ones <clears throat> and he was discussing them with some people and he was criticizing and they said to him well if you're so smart why don't you do your own thing you know if you're so if you you know if you're such a critic and he said okay <laughs> so he produced his own modern speech version called the new testament american an american translation uh New Testament 1923. And, uh, this was the first American that adopted the addition that adopted the American idiom rather than the British idiom. <clears throat> he had a colleague in the Old Testament department, J.M.P. Smith. I mentioned in B here who did the Old Testament and they published them together in 1931. The Bible and American translation. They revised it in 35. He added the Apocrypha. 1935, they had another edition. Uh, as mentioned here in C, Goodspeed was criticized for monkeying with the Bible, <laughs> according to a headline in the Chicago Tribune. The New York Times criticized him for changing candle to lamp. Uh, remember that, uh, in Old Testament time, in New Testament times, they didn't use candles, uh, they used these oil lamps. And the hole at the left would, you know, you'd have oil in there and then you have a wick that came out. Mm-hmm. And this is what they used. They didn't use uh, candles, but the King James has candles because Tyndall, uh, when he translated from the Greek, he translated the Greek word for, uh, lamp as candle. So he was in a sense using a dynamic equivalent or a modern equivalent. So people in his day would understand, I guess, you know, you assume they wouldn't understand what a lamp is, but they know what a candle is. Uh, but candles didn't become popular until, uh, 
mainly in the Middle Ages, though invented earlier. And so uh, he uh, got some criticism for monkeying with the Bible, making these changes. So this is a common thing, a common theme uh, that folks don't particularly like um, changes in the Bible. We can understand that. And there can be a lot of criticism. Well, the Roman Catholics get involved in this. At least a Roman Catholic does. Uh, Knox, uh, a Roman Catholic by name uh, Ronald Knox, a Roman Catholic priest, scholar at Oxford University. So he wanted to make a modern speech version. He got permission to translate the Latin Vulgate into modern oh, English. Ed was yawning too. <laughs> The New Testament was published in 1945 and the Old Testament in 1949. I say he produced an excellent translation, but it suffered from the fact that it was a translation of a translation. We saw this chart before when we were talking about the first Catholic English Bible called the Douay Reims that came out right before the King James Version, 1609-1610. That that was revised by a British bishop, Bishop Chaloner, in 1749 and 50. And I'll come back to this chart later because of the confraternity New Testament. But remember, the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the Council of Trent in 1546 designated the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, as the authoritative translation, as the authentic authoritative translation of the church. And so you can only translate from the Latin Vulgate into other languages. And so Knox, uh, he, even though he knew Greek and all that, and he could, he could only translate from the Latin Vulgate, which he did in 1949, uh, 1944, uh, uh, I got the wrong date here, 1945. It should be Old Testament 1949. So it was a pretty good translation. But it got superseded very quickly because in 1943, the Pope permitted translation from the original languages. And we're going to come back to that point a little later. But it wasn't until 1943 that even Catholic scholars could translate the Bible into another language from the original languages themselves. Seems very strange, but they held the Latin Vulgate and still do in high esteem. Uh, that brings us to Philip's New Testament. If you uh, are familiar with any of these versions, if you've ever heard of any of these, this is probably the one you've heard of. I've, when, you, when, I went, when I've gone to places like resale stores and old clothing stores, what's that one on, uh, on Dick's there? I can't remember that name of that place. Value City, Value City. Remember Value World. Value World, yeah. My mom and and my wife used to love. My mom used to. My mom loved to go to those things <laughs> when she came to live with us in uh, 2005. She used to. We used to. My wife would take her there, but I remember going in there a few times, and I've seen many times Philip's New, Philip's New Testament there. So it was very popular. <clears throat> And this this took place uh, during World War II. Um, that J. B. Phillips uh, began translating uh, the epistles into modern English because it was the same problem we've seen before. He was working with young people, and they had a difficult time understanding the King James version. So he decided he would be, be try to make some uh, understandable translations. And so his first work, Be There, was Letters to Young Churches. That's the volume I've seen many times in in resale stores and like Value World and places like old bookstores. You'll see copies of letters. used to see a lot of copies of Letters to Young Churches. And uh, it was published in 1947. Um, uh, the New Testament wasn't done until 58 and revised in 72, as we'll see. but in the preface, here's C.S. Lewis. He wrote about this uh, letters to young churches. Lewis said himself said, 
it would have saved me a great deal of labor if this book had come into my hands when I first seriously began to discover what Christianity was. So Lewis was impressed by how readable this was and helpful it was to him to understand what the Bible was saying in the the epistles. So Phillips went on and published uh, the Gospels in 52, Acts, Revelation in 57, entire New Testament in 58. Um, See here, Phillips' work was characterized by a great deal of paraphrase. And that can be bad. You know, we want to translate accurately, but you don't want to get too paraphrastic, like greet one another with a holy kiss with shake hands, handshake all around. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Handshake all around. That's a little, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's fun to read, but you know, it, it conveys the sense of the idea. You're greeting someone, greet one another with a holy kiss. It, it's, it's the day we would shake hands. Of course, I don't know how much, if we'll ever shake hands again, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that may never happen, you know, again. Yeah. So let's see. But, uh, he had, uh, it became quite popular. It left uh, a lot. Does that brush your hair is not the same thing as anoint your head? Matthew 6, 17. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a little too much, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, me. So uh, Phillips made a revision in 1972 when he noticed that some readers were taking his translation to be authoritative. Uh, and so he kind of curbed his useful uh, enthusiasm and so forth. And uh, his translation is widely known, actually, uh, especially this one on Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he says in verse 2, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. That's really a, a tremendous way of trying to capture uh, capture what Paul is saying there, you know. Don't be conformed to this world. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. It's just a, just a great way, I think, of getting the idea across, you know. But let God remold your minds from within. So it, he has some good phrasing there many times, and many people found this helpful. Again, he wasn't trying to replace the Bible in church or in the pew, uh, in the pulpit. He was just trying to help people understand their Bibles, which is not, is not a bad thing. Now, this movement, as we'll see, uh, this idea of the trans, of putting the Bible into modern English continues on, but it takes a while before it really takes off. So let's come to page 57 in our notes. And we'll come back to our uh, official translation, sort of. The official church Bibles. Now, when we, we, we started with the, the, um, the Church of England, of course. Uh, held the copyright, we might say, to all these early Bibles, the King James, the 1769, then the Revised Version. But then we have the American counterparts, the ASV. And now there's a revision of the ASV. And this is a very important one, uh, a very, very important one, because theologically it, it has a lot of theological importance. It's called the Revised Standard Version. So it's, it's again, these are not brand new translations. The revised version of 1881 was built on the 1769 King James. The American Standard Version was a revision of the RV. And this RSV is built off the ASV. Uh, I put uh, I, the, the date of 1946 is the New Testament, the Old Testament 52, the Apocrypha 57. Remember, I mentioned last time that. When these people start out to produce a new translation, they divide the work up into committees. And the New Testament is is much smaller than the Old Testament, so it gets finished first. So it's always published separately first. And then when the Old Testament is published, it's published as the Bible, one together. 
So let's look at this. This is uh, quite an important version. This is a revision of the ASV of 1901. In 1929, the International Council of Religious Education obtained the copyright to the ASV. Now, this ultimately becomes what we think of as the World Council of Churches. It granted continued publication rights for the ASV and subsequent revisions that Thomas Nelson exchanged for funding of a standard Bible committee. Now, this is a practice that we're going to see with other translations, that translations like the NIV and the ESV have committees that are still meeting today. The NIV has a committee. The ESV has a committee. They meet every year, and they look at changes, possible improvements. And then in about 25 or 30 years, they'll come up with a revision. So the revision, the King, the NIV was revised in 84 and then 2011. The ESV will one day been revised a number of times, uh, slightly, but now it's kind of fixed for a while, but the committee still meets every year and this standard Bible committee still meets. And so they said, if you'll fund this committee, uh, then we will give Thomas Nelson the rights. If you pay us, we'll give us the rights to publish this. Um, this is what happened, as we'll see with the NIV. Zondervan stepped in and gave the translation committee a lot of money in order that Zondervan have exclusive rights to publish the NIV. Because it takes a, takes a good bit of money to produce one of these translations. You've got a, uh, you've got travel expenses. You've got to meet every, you've got to meet a uh, number of years. You have to put people up in hotels and so forth. So the committee first met in, 1930, April the 15th, and decided to begin a revision of the ASV, but debated whether it should be more of a colloquial translation that was argued for by Edgar J. Goodspeed. So Edgar J. Goodspeed was on the committee. Remember, we tell you he had produced a colloquial in, in more modern English or a more literal one. Should we have a more meaning for meaning like the NIV or should we have a more word for word? like the ESV. So ESV is not so word for word, really. It's more like the ASV would be. In the end, the committee reached something of a compromise voting for a revision of the ASV, but in the Tyndall King James tradition. So the idea was to modernize the language of the King James without sacrificing its dignity. So the RSV is still in that line of, of the language. You can still see the King James English there to some degree to a good degree. Well, because of a lack of funding, the Great Depression, they didn't do anything uh, until a committee of 32 scholars was convened in 1937 at New York City University. The committee from various denominations was divided into two groups, Old Testament, New Testament, and mostly of a liberal persuasion. Although A.T. Robertson and Kyle Yates, both of Southern Baptist Seminary, were members of the New Testament and Old Testament committees, respect. they were conservatives. But also in the committee was a Reformed Jew, Harry Emerlinski. The chairman was Luther A. Weigel, dean of Yale Divinity School. Here's Luther Weigel. We'll talk about him later here. Now, I'm going to explain this more fully in just a moment here on the next page, but uh, we're going going to wait to explain it. But just remember now that on this committee, you had what we might call conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, and those of a more liberal persuasion. And I'll explain that more in just a moment because it's very important in Bible translations. So number four, the RSV modernizes the English. Seth becomes says, sinneth becomes sins. Uh, so thou and thee were dropped except where God is addressed and so forth. Uh, the New Testament was published in 1946, and it was generally well received, even amongst some fundamentalists. So Moody Bibles, Moody Bible Institute's magazine, Moody Monthly praised the RSV, and John R. Rice ran ads for it in the Sword of the Lord. <laughs> now, that's kind of amazing. I'll get to why that's kind of amazing in a moment, because... Today, the RSV, at least when I was coming along, 
was looked upon as something to be despised in a sense. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, but there wasn't that reaction at first. John R. Rice thought it was great. Uh, Moody Bible Institute thought it was great and so forth. So they 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 approved it, and and it was good in the New Testament generally. It was it was fine. There was nothing nothing particularly wrong in the New Testament, and it's not a terrible translation anyway, except for some particular issues. Now let's get to that number six. The Old Testament was published in 1952. The RSV did not follow the ASV in its translation of the divine name in the Old Testament Yahweh with Jehovah, but returned to the King James translation of Lord, a practice that is followed by most modern translations. I got to make a note there in my notes here because that should be all caps, Lord, and not like that is there, all caps. Uh, in a number of places in the Old Testament, it adopted conjectural emendations marked by the letter CN. Now, that's a big problem. That's a huge problem. So in places in the Old Testament, uh, they departed from what the Hebrew text says and just conjectured, conjecture, met a conjecture, conjecture about what they thought the Bible should say. And that is a problem. Uh, there's really no need for that kind of thing, particularly. Another problem with it, it's accused of having a liberal bias, such as its translation of Isaiah 714. Um, young woman instead of virgin. And that's a kind of a key text that we'll come across again and again. So the, 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 you look at like the NIV, the ESV, they have virgin there. But the, uh, but uh, this translation had young woman. It comes down to a debate about how to translate a certain Hebrew word, the Hebrew word Alma. Conservatives are pretty much agreed. I'm, 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 I agree. I'm, con- I'm, uh, certain and I feel certain and all the teachers I've ever had, all the scholars that I've ever had, Old Testament scholars would say Alma should be translated virgin. But, uh, liberal scholars, and we'll, I'll get to that in just a second said, no, it should be young woman. There's no proof that Isaiah was talking about a virgin. So that becomes quite a little important text. Uh, there, There is some debate about Alma. There can be some question about Alma. It's not 100% certain, but most think it should be virgin. I, I do, and all the Old Testament profs that I know of uh, that I've had contact with think so too. The Apocrypha was not part of the original project since the RSV was originally originally ASV, which didn't contain it. It was included and produced in 1957. Now let's come to page 58. The Standard Bible Committee of the RSV has continued to meet and has periodically updated it. In 1966, a Catholic version was published, which incorporated some changes in the New Testament. In 1971, a second edition of the New Testament was produced. So it's, it's become a, a, some, a, a somewhat of an ecumenical version. Now there's a revision of this that we'll talk about later called the New Revised Standard Version. But notice number nine. Here we get to it. Um, I forgot to put that up there about that. But. The RSV was widely adopted by a number of mainline Protestant churches. Although well done in many respects, the RSV never displaced the King James Version in the numbers of Bibles sold, chiefly because it was not well received by most conservatives. J. Oliver Buswell, former president of Wheaton College, complained the RSV committee believed in the Bible's infallibility. John R. Rice and Moody Bible Institute withdrew their support. Once the Old Testament came out, they withdrew their support. So what's happened here? Back in 1850, 1870, 1880, 
I've changed to the built-in microphone. It says, can you still hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. We can hear you. So uh, why it changed, I don't know, but I'll leave it there for now. So what happened? Uh, so in the 1800s, particularly, um, uh, people began to question the enlightenment, so forth, a lot of things. People began to question the Bible. And what we call theological liberalism came in. And uh, so in 1850, if you went to an Episcopal church, the pastor of that church would say he believed the Bible was the God's word. If you went to a Methodist church, if you went to a Presbyterian church. But that began to change in the late 1800s. And theological liberals, people who claimed to be Christians, said they were Christians, they were very moral and conservative, but they started questioning certain key doctrines. Here are the key doctrines they've questioned. They question the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, the reality of miracles. Well, you, if you question all that, are you really a Christian? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but these people claim to be Christians, and they still claim to be Christians. So the Methodist church today is is just... The United Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church I'm talking about, is a liberal denomination. But there may be some evangelicals in there. There could, there can be certainly, but for the most part, you know, if you went to a Methodist church, you, you would find, uh, a pastor who wouldn't necessarily believe any of these doctrines. They might believe some of them, but they wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't be taught it in their seminaries, in Methodist, United Methodist seminaries. Presbyterians are split. There's conservative Presbyterians, very good men, very good men that we have a lot in common with, and we look at their materials and read their stuff, very conservative Presbyterians. And there's liberal Presbyterians. That's true of Baptists, too. There are liberal Baptists, and there are conservative Baptists, uh, like us, evangelicals. So my point in us saying all this is this controversy, this division between evangelicals and liberals, didn't affect Bible translation in 1800 or even 1881 with the revised version. But as we, as we start getting into the 20th century, then the RSV comes along and we have on that committee theological liberals and theological conservatives who are getting along, you know. Now today, uh, we wouldn't use a Bible that was produced by theological liberals we use the ESV or the New American Standard or the NIV. We would only use a Bible by translators who are committed to these doctrines and to the inerrancy of Scripture. So every every Bible we use would be one, you know, I mean, I've got them on my computer that are not that are done by liberals, but I'm just saying the Bible, any Bible in church we would use would be one that was was translated by people who held to the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture and held to the cardinal Christian doctrine. So, but I'm just saying that that's what's happened uh, in the 20th century is that um, we are faced now with a division in Christianity and that has affected Bible translations. So this RSV was really a good translation, except for these problem verses, these problem places. I say Rice, John R. Rice and Moody Bible Institute withdrew their support. Yet in 1970, Donald Gray Barnhouse defended it in an article in Eternity Magazine. Now, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous Presbyterian pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Very famous conservative guy. Very, very good preacher and good man. The faculty at Fuller, Fuller Theological Seminary in particular strongly defended the RSV, including the Isaiah 714 translation. John Piper claims it was his reading, meditating, and memorizing Bible from 1964 when he was a freshman at Wheaton College till the arrival of the ESV in 2001. So Fuller Theological Seminary was started by a an evangelist named Charles Fuller in the 40s, started as an evangelical seminary, conservative. But over the years, Fuller has drifted 
drifted to the left. Uh, it still has some conservative people there, but it's, it's, it's not as evangelical as it was once was. And I wouldn't recommend it for anybody to go there to study. But Piper went there. John Piper went there and Piper was very conservative, as you know. And, uh, well, he was at Wheaton first and he, got a hold of an RSV and he loved it. Well, it was a lot better than the King James as far as modern English and everything. And uh, now he wouldn't defend the Isaiah 714. I'm not saying that. Piper wouldn't. And Piper, uh, when he went to his church, Bethlehem Baptist, uh, he didn't use the RSV because of the and the, and the controversy. Uh, he used the New American Standard until... The ESV came out, and we'll talk about the English Standard Version, which is a revision of the RSV, a conservative revision. By 1970, the RSV was being used in a number of evangelical colleges and seminaries. The latest revision of the widely recognized uh, International Standard Bible Cycle uses the RSV. So the RSV is problematic. I wouldn't recommend it for our church to use it or a church to use it. Uh, it, it's not a terrible translation. It's not like every verse is bad, but it has some problem passages that prohibit us from recommending it, you know, as a church Bible or there's plenty of alternative Bibles to use. I mentioned in number 10, Senator Joseph McCarthy, remember him, accused several members of the committee of being communist <laughs> or communist sympathizers. In 1952, Luther Hux, a pastor in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, publicly burned the page bearing Isaiah 7.14 that he had ripped from a copy of the RSV on which he had written the word fraud. A metal box containing the ashes of the RSV were sent to Dean Weigel at Yale University, Yale Divinity School. Remember, he was the head of the RSV committee. and uh, So somebody burned an RSV, put, put the ashes in there and sent it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, a letter sent to Weigel asked this. Here's a letter he got. Who is this Tom Nelson who has written a new Bible? I don't want Tom Nelson's Bible. I want the Bible the way the Apostle James wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Nelson, he got confused because it was published by Thomas Nelson. Uh, you know, he didn't like this. I want the way the Apostle James. Uh, I guess he thought the King James Version was done by the Apostle James or something. <laughs> Is that the uh, thing that folks are poking fun of when they say if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me? I don't know. <laughs> but there's the RSV, and it's, not, it's, it's good, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. So... It's not that it's a terrible translation, but it's been superseded now by other works. But it, it's, it's the, it's the translation that began to cause real controversy in Bible translation because of this liberal drift among certain people who were translating that we'll talk more about. All right. I've gone over here and, uh, thanks for joining us tonight.